Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us is Mike Canty, CEO of ARC Armaments Research Company, an innovative artificial intelligence firm. He co-founded in 2016, a West Point graduate and former artilleryman who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. His new company started by using AI sensors in weapons to help the Army improve reliability, as well as optimize ammunition uh, usage that's now helping shape uh, the services joint all domain command and control uh, future. It's uh, it's an incredible uh, story, Mike. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure having you on. Pleasure to join you, Vago. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, not only uh, sponsors our weekly cyber report, but our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air warfare uh, coverage and our weekly air power uh, podcast. Um, as I said in the introduction, uh, you started uh, the company uh, to solve a, uh, a specific and relatively uh, small or relatively large problem, uh, depending on uh, what it is, right? I mean, the Army and its individual weapons are, are absolutely critical and, and key to the soldier as the most important weapon system in the Army, not, not to uh, go with the Army's bumper sticker on this, uh, that served as an incredible foundation on which you've managed uh, to grow uh, your company. Tell the audience how you came up with the original idea, and uh, and then we can talk about how you guys scaled it, because what it is you were doing, nobody else was doing. Sure. So it started out, I was uh, I was in the Army, as you mentioned, for, for nine years, and so I was involved in some of the earlier conflicts in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, came back, got out, and, uh, and went to grad school, met an engineer there, and uh, together we came up with uh, a concept around um, sharing information more readily on the battlefield. One of the, the problems that, that I saw over and over again, especially in, in tactical engagements, is not having the right information at the right time to be effective. And so we, we came up with uh, the weapon as an information node to potentially, because it's, all, uh, it's, it's centrally located on the battlefield um, and it's part of all battlefield activity, as a, a robust source of information to be able to then share uh, across uh, soldiers on and assets on the battlefield, and so uh, <clears throat> what we what we ended up doing is we ended up trying to solve a, a problem uh, that I had experienced in uh, on my in my first firefight on my first deployment to Iraq, where we were uh, called in. There was a platoon of about twenty soldiers that were pinned down in some dense palm groves in Iraq that uh, had radioed to us for support. And when we arrived on site, we could hear the gunfire being exchanged. But even though it was broad daylight, the palm groves were so thick, we couldn't see more than 20 meters in front of us. So we couldn't make out friendly locations. Therefore, we couldn't see where their weapons were oriented. So we didn't know where the line of fire was and we didn't know where the threat was located. So at the time I had uh, about nine Iraqi army soldiers on the knee behind me looking at me to make a decision. And the best thing that I could do in that, in, that, uh, in that example was tell them to stand by because the risk for fratricide was, was too great. And so over the next 20 or so minutes, we were able to piece together uh, the, that information uh, from radio transmissions. But by that point, uh, the enemy had already slipped away. We didn't have the, the, the information that we needed to, to be responsive enough. And that, that situation played itself out uh, over and over again over the course of, of that deployment. And... Uh, and, and my colleagues saw uh, a lot of similar situations. So 
what we wanted to do was uh, help solve that problem and do it in a way that's uh, non-obstructive to, to the individual and uh, is automated. And, and how did you guys uh, manage to solve that problem, right? Because fire direction was something that a number of other guys were working on uh, as well, right? Detection on uh, bearing, um, the uh, Israelis have worked on that for a while. What is it that you guys did that was different from what everybody else was doing? Well, one thing is we put the, we put the warfighter first, just having experience as an end user, having fielded other capabilities that were some, somewhat um, obstructive to our operations, whether they weighed too much, they got into the field of view, there was something that, were, that was difficult to maintain. And so what we did was we placed a, a miniaturized sensor into the open cavity in the pistol grip of an M4 weapon. And you know this this applies to not only M4s but also M16s. The M4 replacement that's coming out, the next generation squad weapon. Uh, both of those platforms have the same cavity, so it's completely transparent to the end user. And what we did is <clears throat> we start capturing utilization data from that weapon, and so uh, we then process that that data at the edge using ML techniques, and we draw insights from it. And those insights have applications, not only for situational awareness in the case that I just described where you're understanding where that line of bearing is, uh, the shot trajectory, but you're able to triangulate threat location as well, place all that information onto a map to be able to make decisions if you're a unit that might be responding to the situation or you're in an operations center, trying to make uh, a decision as to how best to support that unit. Now you're getting all that information in real time as opposed to waiting for uh, that ground force commander to have the bandwidth to step back from controlling the threat in front of them and organizing a maneuver uh, response. Um, you're not waiting for that information. You already have it. And now you're pushing down uh, asset options to, to that ground force commander. So that was one of the first applications given you know, to the earlier point that uh, a weapon is central to all battlefield activity. It also has other applications, whether it's training at the individual level, uh, the, the squad level, uh, or even the higher echelon levels, being able to aggregate information uh, and then review it after an event is, is something that we also do. And then take a look at uh, the logistical aspect of it, being able to opt optimize ammunition forecasting, as well as predictive maintenance for, for the uh, individual weapon. So a lot of different applications just given uh, the central role that that the weapon has on ground activity, and um, and tell folks right that cavity. What's the size, form, fit, function uh, of this um, uh, you know gadget effectively that then open the door for all of these other uh, predictive capabilities, right? Um, maintenance, reliability. I mean, it was always a challenge with the M4 Army's line. Always is if the soldier actually takes care of their weapon, the weapon will take care of you. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about the form, fit, and function, and the hardware that then enables all of the things that flow to it. And I want you to bridge, you know, as, as you said, right, you, you started with shot direction, then it becomes a reliability function. Uh, it helps on ammunition usage. You now have a training role. And now you're connecting this all the way up to playing a role in the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System uh, project uh, con convergence in the case of uh, the Army Project Overmatch and Air Battle Management System for the Air Force, uh, you know, like how you're funneling into that high end now. Right. So it's pretty cool that there's, you know, I think 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 
there wasn't the, the size, weight, and power um, for these sensors. These sensors exist in, in larger weapons platforms. So, you know, ATACM's missiles, Gimler's missiles have the same uh, underlying technology in them uh, to be able to gather this information for those weapons platforms. It just didn't hit the swap characteristics uh, for smaller weapons platforms. So we were able to get it down to about a uh, two by three inch uh, sensor, weighs under 40 grams. So uh, completely unnoticeable uh, to, to, to warfighters. You know, we took this over, worked with uh, SOCOM a bit on some of the early, um, the early versions of, of the actual sensor. And the feedback that we got was, you know, we were able to go out, conduct our training, and we didn't even know it was there. And that's the, that's the intent um, of creating something that, that's that small. So we're benefiting from some of the developments in technology over the last uh, couple of decades to be able to make something that's actually practical to, to the end user. And, when and we, how are you, and, and then how are you now connecting that uh, and it, that it becomes sort of a, like the JADC2 connection to me is the most fascinating about how you started it for one application, like a lot of really good ideas that then actually becomes something that becomes more foundational to a much bigger and much more, uh, or, or as important or a bigger priority, let's say. So there's a, a couple of things that, that we enable with, with JADC2. So the, the, the intent of JADC2 is to create this connected battlefield where in general, you're leveraging all the assets uh, to be able to reduce sensor to shooter timelines. So the origin of the request in, in our case, that, that, that ground force commander, that ground unit that might be involved in a, in a firefight or needs uh, some other um, supporting assets, that's the potential choke point or bottleneck for the, the original request. And so what we wanna make sure is that that unit isn't, um, uh, that that information is coming from the unit as quickly as possible. Sometimes it's not practical for them to be able to do that because they're engaged with, you know, they're in high, high pressure, high intense situations where they're trying to make sure that, you know, they're saving the lives of, of those around them first and making decisions as to how to control a threat we're enabling them to automatically send that information out just through natural behavior of the weapon. So when they fire that weapon, we're sending information on the details of you know, where that line of fire is, how many rounds are, are being exchanged, the rate, rates of fire, uh, and then where that threat is located. So now <clears throat> all that fundamental information that support assets, whether it's uh, a load-bearing UAV or an operation center that might be uh, um, diverting a, a ground force over to be able to support them. All of that information is getting out regardless of whether or not that individual places that manual radio uh, transmission. Um, let me um, move you from uh, the technology uh, to the reality of founding a company. You found, as I mentioned, you founded in 2016 after uh, you graduated Columbia Business School. Um, walk us through the challenges of creating a company, crossing the valley of death, right? The Sibbers, the small business uh, initiatives can work, but it gets you only to a certain size. We talked to Lee Madden about this at Epirus, uh, sort of, the, you know, get, then getting into the valley. And the department has been trying to work programs uh, to try to shepherd innovative companies through. And, and we've got more companies uh, that are growing, you know, we before we started, you know, Andril, uh, Palantir, obviously a much bigger company, but uh, very important and, and some of the work that it does in the defense space. Uh, Rebellion is is trying to do that, right? I mean, we've got a, a lot of names uh, trying to do this kind of thing. What's 
what's the challenge of doing this? And is what the government, is the government helping in this process as much as it should be, could be, right? I mean, what's sort of the, the deck plate experience, uh, the frontline experience you're getting in doing this about what's working and the right way to, to sort of encourage companies that do have a better mousetrap to get that better mousetrap out because you're competing against bigger guys, deeper pockets, they can buy in, uh, right? Um, you know, sort of walk us through the, the dimensions and, and the challenge of sort of getting there uh, and helping your customer in the process. So I think the, one of the primary challenges is just understanding uh, the acquisitions process for the defense industry. Uh, for someone that <clears throat> doesn't have a, a background uh, there in, you know, even coming from, you know, an army career in, for, for, for nine years at the tactical level, a lot of the acquisitions process isn't necessarily uh, even in, intuitive to, to me having, you know, some exposure to, uh, to service. And so I think that that's probably the, the, the main challenge up front. And uh, it's a very complex problem. There's a lot of people that are are, are trying to solve it, but I would say that what we what it's you know allowed us some some level of success up to up to this point is simply solving the a high priority problem and having some conviction that it's that it's a real need. And in order to be able to develop that, uh, it helped to be able to talk to we we talked to over 300 uh, stakeholders, whether it's end users, people within the acquisitions community, partners uh, in the defense ecosystem. Talked over 300 of those in, in the first year to really get a good education and understanding of uh, how to be able to make it through the acquisitions process. And so one of the, you know, I think the, the, the key things that we've learned is when we're approaching those, those individuals, if you have a warfighter, whether it's from an active duty unit within Special Operations Command or over in the 82nd Airborne, in the case of the Army, uh, if you're getting validation from those units that this is, this is a capability that is that is gonna be useful to us, not in, in five or 10 years, in its current form factor now, here are some specific examples uh, that this would have helped us in, you know, in the operational environment or in training. The acquisitions community, not, not always, but for the most part, will listen to that. And so I, I do think that staying close to the warfighter so that you, you can, uh, with some, some level of certainty, address a real problem that's a top one or two problem, not a nice to have three or four problem that, that if you're, if you're tackling that, then, then the warfighter will, will vocalize that and the acquisitions community will listen. Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute wrote a great paper, Pixie Dust, and sort of this perception by those, um, you know, in, in the services of thinking of AI as like Pixie Dust, right? I got a problem. I just sprinkle some of this on it and we solve it and that it, it actually doesn't work that way. There are a lot of concerns about the perils of AI, uh, and indeed, right in the broader world, uh, it, it, it does cause challenges. Uh, but for specific applications, tailored applications, it, it works well, but you have to know what you're doing. You need to know the problem you're trying to solve. What, you know, from, from your standpoint, as an AI company that has a hardware component to it that's actually solving seemingly small problems that are actually very big problems, if you think about it, um, and astonishing that we haven't solved it yet. But as you said, right, we didn't have size, weight, power, and all of the other things that go with it. And, and now we do, uh, and the sensors. How do, how do folks need to think about AI to get the most out of it, whether it's on predictives, whether it's on um, 
you know, other uses? How do, how do we need to think about it to best harness it, Mike? I think the, the, the best way to think about, um, you know, having effective AI is, AI is, is, is really useful for specific tasks. And finding specific tasks for, to be able to automate leveraging AI, I think is probably the, the, the best way to be able to approach it and leaving the higher order judgment uh, for humans. And that's ultimately what AI at, at this point uh, is, is, is best capable of doing. So for example, uh, for a ground force that might be you know, firing their weapons in, in the middle of an engagement and uh, tracking that ammunition consumption for a squad leader that has several other things that they're trying to address at, at, at one time, whether it's controlling air assets that might be overhead trying to support them telling uh, the supporting unit where to maneuver themselves that's outside of the line of fire, finding out, getting 100% accountability of their personnel. There's a lot of things going on whilst, while having bullets flying at you is, 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 uh, is very challenging. And so what happens is you know, being able to understand what your ammunition status is so that your, your, your unit doesn't run out and place yourself at greater risk is a manually intensive task where that squad leader is going to ask his, uh, the individuals in his, in his squad what their status is, physically go over and sometimes touch their magazines, and then count all of that up. And so that's tough to do in the middle of that type of situation, but AI can, can do that very easily and can track that automatically so that that, that squad leader can then focus on the higher priority judgment, uh, judgment uh, type situations. So that's where we found the most success leveraging AI. It's also really difficult for humans to be able to understand the, the relative health of a weapon. So how do you characterize uh, whether what the bolt speed is? I think that that's difficult right. for a human to be able to do. That's something that, that when you apply AI to, it can do far more effectively. How much of this has been fielded? How much is to come, right? Give us, give us a sense on where, where you are in, in, in the process, right? So that people don't go, well, yeah, but this is just a great idea and it's 10 years out. Where, where are you now in, in sort of getting out there into the force? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, so really excited about uh, the next generation squad weapon, which I mentioned before is the M4 replacement. The M4 is the primary weapon uh, for service members uh, across the services. For the Army specifically, they're rolling out a replacement to that. Um, and, and so there's going to be up to 250,000 weapons that are going to be fielded uh, to replace that M4, as well as the squad automatic weapon, the, the M249. And so the, I think the really neat thing about those uh, replacement weapons is that they're going to have intelligence in them. And this is for the first time ever for tactical weapons at scale that the Army is doing this. And that, that intelligence is going to be our sensor uh, and then uh, our software as well to be able to visualize some of the information that's being gathered from the weapon. So that's, that's the, the, the next step. And I think that um, given that, uh, uh, that opportunity as a, as a proving ground for some of the other weapons, uh, tactical weapons platforms like the 50 Cal, Mark 19, 30 Mike Mike, um, 40 Mike Mike, all the way up to mortar. So. Uh, I think that this is the start of an expansion of gathering weapons or gathering uh, data from from weapons at the tactical level uh, for the first time ever. Mike, when you look out uh, five years, right, where do you expect where do you expect to be? 
uh, growth-wise, product-wise, and how can you leverage this capability into other markets, right? I mean, now that you've sort of cracked that code, you've got a partner uh, like Sig Sauer uh, on the new weapon, uh, you know, obviously a, a company focused on uh, success and growing its base. Um, you know, what, where, where, do you, where do you see this technology and, and applying it that goes beyond sort of, right, the, the Army weapons hardware? Where else do you think you can expand it to? So, you know, our, our technical roadmap is, is, is pretty vast, uh, you know, five years out. So we're not limited to just, you know, the um, small arms also expanding to crew serve weapons and artillery. So you have a, 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 a truly connected battlefield at the technical, uh, at the tactical level. Uh, and we're, we're working quite a bit with, with Sig Sauer that really sees this vision and is, and is looking to expand it uh, even more broadly, not just with, uh, with the US uh, in tactical weapons, but also bringing in uh, other battlefield assets like tipping and queuing the information or using the information from the weapon to tip and queue uh, UAVs, uh, as well as uh, ground combat systems. So I think that integrating into other uh, battlefield capabilities to truly uh, create that connected battlefield uh, is, is, is where we wanna go and where we're hearing demand from, from the market. Uh, and then we have a, a roadmap of about a million devices over the next uh, four to five years from existing, uh, from, from, from highly visible pipeline that we're having with uh, some of the, the customers across the globe through Sig Sauer. So I see this as, as becoming a, a standard equipment across global defense forces uh, over the next five years. Uh, absolute pleasure having you on uh, and uh, look forward to having you back on again in the future to talk about uh, these issues and how we should think about uh, harnessing uh, the best the nation has to offer uh, to solve big problems. You know, I think that we we tend to get focused on, uh, you know, the big programs, uh, you know, F-35, FLARA, uh, and, and really the edge is that contact edge. Uh, and it's astonishing to me that it's um, taken as long as it has to address uh, some of these challenges. But again, right, we were looking at technological hurdles. Uh, and I know um, there, there are a lot of soldiers who are thanking you uh, for uh, developing uh, some capabilities. 